0: It was in the year 1741 during a time in our nation's history that scholars have called the Great Awakening. A certain pastor from Connecticut was asked to write a letter to a newly converted friend concerning how he should live his new Christian life in the context of all that was going on in the world around him. And this is just a portion of what that man of God wrote. My dear young friend, As you desired me to send you in writing some directions on how to conduct yourself in the Christian course, I would now answer your request. The sweet remembrance of the great things that I have lately seen at your church inclines me to do anything in my power to contribute to the spiritual joy and prosperity of God's people there. In all your course, walk with God and follow Christ as a little, poor, helpless child, Taking hold of Christ's hand, keeping your eye on the marks of the wounds in His hands and side, whence came the blood that cleanses you from sin, and hiding your nakedness under the skirt of the white shining robes of His righteousness. Pray much for the ministers and the church of God especially, that He would carry on His glorious work which He has now begun until the world shall be full of His glory." Particularly, I would beg special interest in your prayers and the prayers of your Christian companions, both when you are alone and when you are together for your affectionate friend who rejoices over you and desires to be your servant in Jesus Christ, signed Jonathan Edwards. Could you imagine a man of God like Jonathan Edwards giving a letter to a child of God, brand new in the faith, concerning how he should conduct himself in the church in many ways would probably be one of the most powerful incentives for living the purposes of God one could ever hope for. To have in your hand a letter that is personal to you and specific in what it conveys to you about the Christian life, that would be something that you might carry in your Bible for years and years. It would be your personal epistle, your personal guide. And though this particular letter that I've just quoted has many more valuable pieces of counsel in it to share. What struck me the most is when Edwards' advice to this young convert said this, to pray that God would carry on his glorious work until the world shall be full of his glory. That is a very telling piece of counsel. And I say that because, listen, for believers to not just be focused on the needs of their own church, for believers not to be just focused on the needs of their own personal walk, But for the believer to be driven for the great commission of our Lord and the needs of evangelism until His glory fills the entire earth, that is something I believe that people often neglect. You see, to be focused on the greater good of God's glory in giving and bringing others far and wide to the saving knowledge of the Son of God, on top of all the other vital aspects of godly living, is what the great commission from our Lord was all about when He revealed it to us. Once the gift of salvation has come to us, we then spread the word of Christ's truth to others far and wide. That's why he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, so go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. To make disciples of all the nations, to teach and baptize all the nations, is a command that sometimes can seem very distant to us, very grandiose, very unattainable. If you're just a part of a local church, like in New Haven, Connecticut, or in Sun Valley, California, you deal with people in your community. You shepherd the people in your midst, and you tell the towns and the cities about the gospel of Christ. But to go to the nations? How does one do that? Today we're going to begin a study on another letter, a letter that is focused on the desire for the world to be filled with the glory of God as well. This is a letter not written by Jonathan Edwards, but written by another John, the Apostle John, a letter that was inspired by God and written to a man who walked and talked and ate and lived with Christ for three years. This is a letter like the letter written by Edwards short in its length but powerful in what it communicates. It is a letter whose greatest objective is concerned with making sure that the purposes of Christ in the church locally and the purposes of Christ in the world globally are both never thwarted, never obstructed, and never interfered with, ever. So what is this letter Pastor John spoke of it is the letter of 3rd John. So open your Bibles, if you have them, to 3rd John as we begin a study in this wonderful letter. Now if you're a regular tender here, joiners, you might be asking yourself, why are we doing this? <laughs> we just started a series in the book of Psalms a few months ago, so why now seemingly out of nowhere would we begin to study 3rd John? What's the connection between the two? And to answer that question, I could say because 3rd John is the shortest book in the New Testament. It would be a quick way for just the next few Sundays for us to learn about a relatively unknown letter that most of us don't know, which would be true. Or I could say that since the most personal of all the letters of the Apostle John, that perhaps the personal nature of it might help us to understand the personal aspects of the Psalms of David, which might be helpful. Or I could say that since it includes the names of different personalities, three different men, actually, it could benefit us in seeing how these men and their different perspectives to the Apostle John could help us respond to a man of God as well, and that would all be true. But the shortest answer is this, my doctrinal studies require it. <laughs> Part of the program here at the Master's Seminary is that the Doctor of Ministry students pre- uh, preach a short series through the book of Third John. And since I have the opportunity here for the next three Lord's Day meetings when we meet for preaching, we're not meeting on Sunday, as you know, for Christmas, uh, I thought this would be a perfect fit. And just so you know, I'm actually glad for the assignment. Why, you might ask? Because it seems to me the first and foremost, uh, the most unfamiliar letter to many of us here in the church. I I say that because I, I know that most of us are very familiar with the Gospel of John, I think I might include some of us are very familiar with the first epistle of John and seeing how Pastor John had just gone through for years the book of Revelation, which is written by John. I think that we're all very familiar with those letters. But when it comes to the Apostle John's second letter and third letter, I think it's safe to say that most people are just less aware of the incredible nuggets that are contained in these inspired letters. Now, even though our focus today and for the next few Sundays are going to be only 3rd John, truth be known, I want to set this up for you by showing you some striking similarities between these two very unfamiliar letters. I say that because if you have your Bible there, you can see that if you go to 2nd John and 3rd John, the first verse of both 2nd John and 3rd John, the Apostle John describes himself as the elder for reasons that I'll discuss later this morning. Also in the first verse of both letters, we have a very similar introduction. In 2 John, we read the first verse, the elect lady and her children, who I love in the truth, a title that most theologians understand to be referring to a specific church, but others see to be actually responding to a particular friend of the apostle. And in a similar way, we see in 3 John, the first verse says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. This name also referring to a personal friend of the Apostle John named Gaius. And I'm also sure that you probably notice as you're looking through that, the expression of love, who I love in the truth, is corresponding in both of them. So it seems that 2 John and 3 John start as personal letters to a friend of the Apostle who reside in local churches whom the Apostle loves, also notice that the endings of Second and Third John also are very, very similar. In Second John, we read John saying in verse twelve, "Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, so that your joy may be complete." Then, at the very end of Third John, we also read John says in verse thirteen and fourteen. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. And so there's some very clear and very obvious similarities between 2 John and 3 John. However, if you're following what I'm saying, because the lady and her children in 2 John could likely be a church and not a friend, 3 John then is the most personal letter of all John's inspired writings. And I want to show you another similarity here between these two letters because I think it's going to help us see something very important, very important that ultimately is the purpose of 3 John and which is somewhat a common purpose of 2 John as well. Now what is wonderful about the Apostle John, and you know his writings, is the fact that usually the Apostle John states the purpose of his writings, as you know, in different letters, sometimes even stating the purpose of the letter in a a specific verse, If you go back to the Gospel of John, you don't have to turn there now, but you remember in John 20, verse 30 and 31, the Apostle says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. But these have been written, here's the purpose, so that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in his name you may have life. When you go to 1 John, you'll also see it has a purpose verse. The beloved Apostle writes, about the believer's assurance. And he says this in 1 John five thirteen: these things I have written to you, again, purpose, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In the book of Revelation, he also tells us that there's a purpose there of his writing in the sense that he says in Revelation 1, 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. So it seems to be as if there's a trend in the Apostle John to reveal his purpose in his writings. Because that's true, one might assume that in 2nd and 3rd John, there would also be maybe a contextual clue as to why he is writing the letters that he is writing. And I believe we're going to see that clue in two verses when you place them side by side. If you go to 2nd John 10 and 11, it says that one of the reasons that John has written the lady and her children is to tell them about who not to receive in their midst. Who not to receive. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. In other words, do not be hospitable to false teachers who want to destroy the church. Now here in third John, however, he tells us that his intention is to tell Gaius who it is that he is to receive into the church. Verses seven and eight, he says, concerning missionaries that he sent to Gaius, for they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. In other words, be hospitable to these men, to these teachers who want to build up the church. Unlike 2 John. 2 John speaks of false teachers. His command is, don't receive them into your homes. But here in 3 John, we have the apostle speaking of the true teachers, and he commends Gaius for receiving them in his midst because, as we shall see, there is one man in the church who is actually opposing the command of the great apostle, and we will see that as well in the weeks to come. So the apostle John here, He's a man of purpose, and in every one of his inspired writings, he writes intentionally to let us know why it is that he is writing so that we understand his intentions. So in the Gospel of John, it is to believe. In First John, it's to know that you believe. In Revelation, it's to be blessed for believing. And in Second and Third John, it's to discern who is a believer so that you can protect and guard the integrity of other believers. And so that sets the stage for us, hopefully, this morning and what our study is going to have. Now, let me tell you about this. For the next three times we meet, and I say that because, you know, we're not meeting on Christmas so that you have to go to big church, you get to go to big church, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., and then you can be with your families for the rest of the day. We don't have evening service. But I'm gonna be looking at this letter in three different sermons. One is today and two that are following. And if you're taking notes, but I'm gonna repeat this a lot over the next few weeks, these are gonna be three portraits, three portraits in Third John that reveal to us Three different kinds of people in the church uh, given to us for our edification and for our warning. And I'll repeat that, but it's three different portraits that we're going to see. I'll just give it to you today, and then we can go over it. You're going to see today the portrait of a faith-filled minister, Then you're going to see a portrait of a faithless meddler. And then you're going to see, lastly, a portrait of a faithful messenger. And we're going to see that together. And we're going to develop each one of these portraits of these men to give us an individual look at how to understand the intentions of of the gospel in these men's lives and how either they encouraged or discouraged this missionary effort. And so let's begin our message today by just reading through the entire letter um, so you can get a gist of what it is that John is saying by first hearing what it is that he has to say. Third John, the elder to the beloved Gaius, who am I love in truth? Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever work you do for the brothers and are doing this, though they are strangers and they bore witness to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does, unjustly despairing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not welcome the brothers either, and he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good witness from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our witness, and you know that our witness is true. I had many other things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pink pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly and will speak face to face. Peace be with you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Now, if you know anything about the book of 3 John, the letter here, you'll know that it's focused primarily, people will tell you, on hospitality, on hospitality in the early church, which there is no doubt that it's partly true. But I believe you can see in the letter, even just by the way that I read it, is that there's much more to this letter than just hospitality. The Apostle John is trying to emphasize something more than just hospitality what hebrews chapter 13:10 tells us about the importance of being hospitable to strangers since they could be angels sent by god that's what abraham experienced this isn't just a letter about hospitality as if john's doing a treatment about the qualifications of an elder because we're told to be hospitable But instead, the purpose of emphasizing this kind of hospitality was to encourage, listen, a hospitality that was in service to strangers who had been sent out by the apostle for the work of the ministry in the name, for the sake of the name. In other words, these strangers were traveling teachers, carrying out the great commission as our Lord instructed. And though the theme, therefore, is hospitality, it's something we need to examine here, but more instructively here is we need hospitality that either meets or declines the purposes of God. It's this kind of hospitality that's on the apostle's heart. It's really about, listen, the acceptance or resistance to apostolic authority. It's about the acceptance or resistance to apostolic authority that underlines this kind of hospitality, knowing that these three men that we're going to look at either were advancing the cause of Christ or blocking the gospel from reaching the ends of the earth. This letter is concerning how humble love or selfish pride can either further or block the purposes of God in his church as he examines three different men's reactions to the mission of missions. So though it's a very short letter, there's a whole lot for us to cover here, so today we're going to begin by just looking at our first portrait, the portrait of a faith-filled minister by the name of Gaius. and I'm breaking the portions of this down by using a very particular portrait idea because I think the best way to look at this letter in my mind is by filtering the purpose of the letter through these men's personalities and how the apostle John reacts to these men so Let's begin with this first portrait, a portrait of this faith-filled minister, and let me just read the first eight verses again to remind you where we're at. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Let's just stop right there for now. So we are introduced for the very first time by this man named Gaius, and Gaius is what I have titled being a faith-filled minister. And I call him that name because verse 8 of 3 John says he's walking in truth. Uh, In other words, he's conducting himself in his manner of life according to the truth. One of the greatest tragedies that I think confronts modern American Christianity today is the unfortunate reality that many men in ministry are not faith-filled. They are not saved or they're not driven by the Spirit of God in their ministries to do what it is that they do for the sake of the truth. So in some ways, they're more useful to Satan than they are to God. These so-called ministers, usually men, sometimes women, who are definitely gifted in ways of communication, definitely gifted in leadership style and and bravado and all the other secular attributes that so many people in the church look for, they are much more gifted in those ways than in true ministry of the church as laid out in Scripture. Many men and women are faithful to the responsibilities in ministry, but not all of them are faith-filled in their approach to the call of God on their life. In this respect Gaius is an exceptional portrait for us in the church to consider. And I say that because the way the apostle John paints the portrait of Gaius and the careful attention to the reactions he has to this wonderful man makes him a faith-filled minister that are very imperative for their growth and our survival. Now, this morning, and I'll tell you right now. I, I, I'll tell you right now. I'm just we could we could cut the tape. There is no way I'm going to get this done, but I'm going to keep preaching. So when you want to leave, just go. Okay. So just go whenever you need to, because I need to get this done for an assignment. Okay. So it's got to be, it's got to be on tape. Sorry. And so uh, bless you all. Have a great Christmas. Uh, but I'm going to keep going to the things done. Okay. So I'm not going to be offended if you leave. Here we go. Five responses. And, and by the way, you're going to see a recurring word that I use here all throughout this section is the word apostolic. I've used that word very intentionally because I want you to understand the weight of what's happening here. So in this first portrait, we're going to see five responses of the Apostle John that he sees in the faith-filled minister named Gaius. Five different reactions, if you will, to Gaius' character that helps us paint the picture of what his usefulness was to the early church. And I'm going to put them up there out front. First, you're going to see a profession of apostolic love, a prayer of apostolic prosperity, a proclamation of apostolic joy, a pledge of apostolic confidence, and a plan for apostolic ministry. And I'm going to go through those again. I know it's quick, but here we go. And as we go through this, though, I do want you to think about, as you hear the reactions of the Apostle Paul to Gaius, I want you to ask yourself, seriously, are these traits true of me? I want you to ask that. I want you to ask, not out loud, but to yourself, if you are ministering in the church in such a way that your lives would be portrayed by the Apostle John or the Lord Jesus Christ, where he would react to your life the way that he reacts to Gaius' life. And you might say, well, Tom, I'm not a minister. Uh, and I'd say, yes, you are. Yes, you are. You are a minister. I've chosen the language here very intentionally. I didn't say Gaius was an elder. I didn't say he was the head of the missions board or even a deacon because we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that he was a minister because, folks, all of us are ministers. All of us in the church are ministers. We may not be called into ministry as a pastor or an elder, but we're called to be ministers, right? Isn't that true? So we're going to long for our master one day to say, well done, good and faithful slave. And because of that, these traits do apply to us. So think about your own life as we look at the life of the faith-filled Gaius. First reaction that the Apostle John has to this man, Gaius, is number one, a profession of apostolic love. And we see this in verse one. The elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. Now, this is probably one of the greatest affirmations a man or woman could ever receive in their entire lifetime, and that would be the greatest profession ever uttered that apostle of Jesus Christ, a man who walked and ministered with him and leaned on his bosom and took care of his mother, this singular apostle, the apostle of love, would say to you in a letter that you could keep for all time, I love you in truth. I just got tingles. That would, uh, to hold a letter like that in your hands from a great man would be an unbelievable gift, unbelievable honor. I say that because when I was a little boy, I did something I've never done since. I was so impressed uh, with the President of the United States that I took the time to carefully sketch in pencil a portrait of his likeness, and I sent it to him in the mail. And I I used to draw all the time. I thought it was just so much fun. I used to draw a pastor every single Sunday and then give it to him as I left, unwittingly knowing that I was proving to him I wasn't listening. Um, But anyway, to my surprise, a few weeks later, I received in the mail from the White House from the Secretary of the President of the United States with a photograph of his two dogs inside telling me how thankful he was for my drawing and my patriotism, signed Rosemary Woods, Secretary to the President of the United States, Richard Milhouse Nixon. That was before Watergate when I did that. I don't know if my letter was tapped, but... But as a 10-year-old boy, think about it. A 10-year-old boy receiving a letter like that was so impressive. It was so amazing. I'll never forget it. Well, how much more Gaius not only received a letter from the Apostle John, but it was an inspired letter. You realize not every letter that the apostles wrote were inspired letters. Proof of that is in verse 9 of this letter where John says that he had written something to the church, but Diotrephes didn't welcome what he said, meaning he discarded it and probably just threw it away. So not everything that the apostles wrote were inspired, but here in 3 John, Gaius has in his hands a personal letter inspired to be given to him to tell the world for all time that the Apostle John loved him in truth. How do we know this elder, verse 1, calls him as the Apostle John? There is some external evidence that points to a man named John the Elder who lived in Ephesus, but all the internal evidence points to the Apostle, as we have said between verse second. Uh, John and 3rd John together. So here's this humble apostle John, the one who speaks of himself in the gospel of John, not by name, but as the disciple whom Jesus loved, telling Gaius that he loves him as well. Gaius is a very common name in the ancient world, just so you know. Gaius is found other places in the New Testament. I don't need to get into it now. Acts 19, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, always associated with Paul in some way. So it appears that there's at least two different men named Gaius in the New Testament. However, there's, there's no indication that either of these men are identified with the Gaius in which 3 John is speaking of. It's like John or Tom. They're very, very common names, and so it's a, co- un, a common name for an uncommon man. So here's the important part. John tells him that he loves him in truth. This isn't just another way of saying, I truly love you, though some people would say that, but rather he's telling him about the source of his love, which is rooted in and grounded in the truth itself. The truth of Jesus Christ, who is the truth. The truth which John loves to speak out all throughout his letter. If you look at verse 3, he speaks of the truth. In verse 4, again, he speaks of the children walking in the truth. Verse 8, he says that we may follow workers with the truth. Verse 12, Demetrius, it says, has a good witness from everybody and from the truth itself. So John's use of truth throughout this letter is never casual. It's very intentional all the way through. And if you have his overall concern for understanding the faith properly and maintaining the faith consistently, he says, that's the core reason why I wrote. And I want you to understand I love you in that truth. Listen, when your sins are forgiven, when you are rescued from the wrath of God, when you are died for, suffered for, and know you're being interceded for, by God, knowing you've been loved, and that he loved us. This isn't some kind of sentimental love. This isn't an emotional-based kind of love. This isn't eros, or philia, or storge kinds of love in the Greek. This is agape love. This is the kind of love that God loves the unlovable with, and now that we have that, now that we have been loved, we know we can love, and now we see the truth of being loved by those who love God, and now is longed for and fought for and celebrated when we exercise it among the brethren and we see this truth also in Gaius. There's a second reaction as we're moving quickly through this, a second reaction by the Apostle John to Gaius's character, not only as you have a profession of apostolic love, but number two, a prayer of apostolic prosperity. And you see this in verse 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. What we have here in this verse is a prayer, and the prayer is for a very specific request, namely that Gaius' physical health, listen to this, that his physical health would match his spiritual health, which is a prayer that most people would never, ever ask for. One pastor remembered that he had a professor one time who wanted to inscribe his name over his name uh, and his friend's autograph this particular verse and then it concerned him because he realized that a prayer for the general health that their spiritual health be reflected in their physical health might be a cause for their death. If for most people praying for their physical uh, health would match their spiritual health would be condemning them to hell. So not so here. The apostle John is so confident of Gaius' soul condition that he doesn't hesitate to pray for his body's health would par- parallel his heart health. That's an amazing prayer. Actually, it's a kind of greeting that was very common in the ancient world so much so that people used to use initials to reflect the Latin. It was S-V-B-E-E-V, which represents a Latin phrase that I'm not going to embarrass myself with, but it says, if you are well, that is good, I am well. And you would see this all over, S-V-B-E-E-V. But the apostle twisted, and he makes a different kind of variation on this, and some believe the reason he wrote it this way is because Gaius' his health was not good, Uh, Perhaps the faith-filled minister had exerted himself too much, gave too much energy, too much hustle and bustle of church life, and, and the traveling teachers had just overexerted him. But we can't be certain, but all we know is this, the prosperity of his soul was a very easy thing for John to pray for. The verb here means to be led along a good road, to have a good journey, metaphorically to succeed or to prosper. Now, I know some of you are automatically thinking um, this kind of prayer is misused to mean something horribly different in the day and age in which we live. We live in a world of false teachers who prey on the innocent and unsuspecting, teaching them that they are to be born to be financially prosperous, and they use this verse to prove it. I looked up Creflo Dollar's interpretation. Can you imagine that guy's name? That just blows me away that anybody would follow a prosperity teacher named Creflo Dollar. Uh, Anyway, on his website, Third John 2 means a prosperous life begins with a prosperous soul, the place where our minds, wills, and emotions reside, one focused on God's word and aligned with his will. So when our souls prosper, we are positioned to receive unlimited prosperity in every area. Right? So in other words, you get your spiritual life in order so your bank account can grow. It's in proportion, so my focus now is determining what I need to do to get my spiritual life in order, which is giving to to dollars-to-dollars ministry, doing good deeds, and trying to do that and denying myself in every way I can because I want to prosper physically in this life. Not for the glory of God, not because my love for Christ, but I want to be prosperous, and this verse is my justification. Tragic. It's so tragic. We just had a team that came back from South Africa this week, and I was told by one of the team members that the prosperity gospel in Africa is the dominating theology there. And also people, think of it, who are starving, who are desperate, who who have no money, are giving money, whatever they have, for the hope of the blessing of God based on a Satanistic interpretation of this verse. But again, what we have here really is such a beautiful expression of confidence in this man's soul so much that he can pray oh if your body was as healthy as your soul i pray for that because i know your spiritual health is that rich and that prosperous there's a third reaction to Gaius' character from the Apostle John that helps paint the picture for us. Not only a profession of apostolic love and a prayer for apostolic prosperity, but now, number three, a proclamation of apostolic joy. And we see this in verse three and four. For I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. There is something so very, very important about the influence of our lives on the lives of others and how your life impacts the life for the truth is so important in the church and the church at large. So given the overall context of these three letters of John, Gaius' faithfulness to the truth is to be understood as a steadfast commitment to the message of the gospel, which he heard from the very beginning, and his rejection now of the new teaching that's being spread by false teachers who were attempting to discredit this newborn faith that had come through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, the news came that to the elder that was not only that Gaius had held on to the teachings, but that he continued to walk in the truth. It wasn't that he just had the information. He, he had the ability to work out his salvation with fear and trembling in front of everybody. And I want you to grasp the depth, the depth of what this brings on apostolic joy to John. The Apostolic Joy, I want you to think about the impact and the influence of your life around those around you, especially listen to your children and family. I want you to know how important your life is, your walk is, to those closest to you. There are so many people who profess Christ sadly say they're believers and yet they resist coming to church. They don't pray. They don't worship. Uh, they have no reading of the Bible as a regular part of their food. And yet they insist that they're on the right side of salvation, that their lives are right with God. And to those who are believers, whether it be in the family or friends, we're so grieved when you see that you can't convince them otherwise. And how they're just going to drop a bomb on their friends that their lives are not in accord with the Christian walk and they're not walking according to the truth. How sad it is for people, and I've talked to them, I've talked to them even this week, to have family secrets that are praying for you secretly because you profess to be in Christ, but everyone around you knows that you're not in Christ, and they're praying for your salvation. How sad it must be to be a Hebrews kind of sixth person who has been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and yet are putting Christ to open shame. You are not a source of joy to them, like Gaius is to John. You're you're not a source of joy to your family. You're a tragedy, waiting judgment. You don't confirm the faith of others. You call into question the legitimacy of the faith of others. But what a contrast to know, whether by letter or email today, by the testimony of a brother or sister that's visiting from out of town whom you love, that those who you ministered to and prayed for and spent time with in discipleship are thriving in their faith that they can sing it is well with my soul and never flinch when they say those words because the work of the Spirit of God continues on and is seen and testified to others. That's a reason for joy. That's why John says I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. And that should be your greatest joy and that should be my greatest joy. How could it be otherwise? Charles Spurgeon comments on this idea of children. John's talking about, those in the faith that he's brought to faith or those who have come to faith because of the teaching that he has given. But Spurgeon speaks of our children, and I want to speak to it. He says, if you're a professing Christians but cannot say that you have no greater joy than the conversion of your children, you have reason to question whether you ought to have made it such a profession yourself. Alas, if our children lose the crown of life, it will be but a small consolation that they have won the laurels of literature or art. Many who ought to know better think themselves superlatively blessed in their children if they become rich, if they marry wealth, if they strike out into profitable enterprises in trade, or if they attain eminence in the profession which they have espoused. Their parents will go to their beds rejoicing and awake perfectly satisfied though their boys are hastening down to hell. If they are also making money by the bushel, they have no greater joy than that their children have their portion in this life and laying up treasure where rust corrupts it. Though neither their sons nor daughters show any signs of the new birth, give no evidence of being rich towards God, manifest no traces of electing love or redeeming grace or the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, yet they are parents who are content with their condition. That would be hatred. That would be hatred for you to love that kind of life for your children. And the apostle John says, no, my greatest joy is to know that you're walking with the truth. My children, again, either those he personally led to Christ or or their children because they share in the faith that he has been given to them, that has once and for all been given to the saints. That's the true place of joy. There's a fourth reaction. I'm going quickly. A fourth reaction to Gaius' character from the Apostle John. Not only the profession of the Apostle's love, a prayer for apostolic prosperity, and a proclamation of apostolic joy, but now, verses 5 and 6, a praise of apostolic confidence. A praise of apostolic confidence. He says, "...beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever work you do for the brothers and are doing this, though they are strangers, and they bore witness to your love before the church." So the Apostle John here now is praising Gaius for the work he's done for the traveling teachers that are coming through the area who are missionaries and strangers among them. And so he acknowledges his confidence in Gaius for the love that he has for them and the love that they've expressed to the Apostle John once they return to the church. And again, I want you to wrap your minds around this because I, I want it just to be, I don't want this to be in your mind just kind of like an attaboy, way to go there, guys, guess, good job kind of remark because the Apostle John is deeply concerned, as we will see next time when we look at the next portrait, about the health of the church throughout the entire region. Remember, and this is key the only way for the truth for which our Lord died could flourish and expand and transform the nations is by being understood. And the only way it could be understood by being faithfully taught. And the only way that it could be faithfully taught and spread would be if faithful teachers would travel all throughout the region, making sure that the truth about Christ and the truth about his substitutionary atonement and the truth about faith alone and Christ alone was taught and modeled and continued. What we see in this verse ultimately is the expression of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 13. How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. These beautiful feet traveling teachers of verse 5 and. John. These are the strangers that came to Gaius. But the mission was not strange to him. He knew the mission. He knew of the vital nature of their mission, the salvation of the world. And he knew that his church could only evangelize their community and their workplaces and their families. But the brothers had taken up the mantle of Romans 10 and they had been sent by the apostle John and their feet were beautiful. Their feet were beautiful not because of any pedicure that they had received. Their feet were dirty and covered with dust of roadways. Their feet were beautiful because they traveled to the lonely road of proclaiming the gospel to those who are dying and in need of salvation. And it was these traveling strangers that Gaius was so hospitable to. And he told the Apostle John, they told the Apostle John of Gaius' hospitality and it made him rejoice and it made him praise. And he had confidence that the plan of the Great Commission was working. Again, the theme of hospitality is central. John MacArthur says, while the theme of showing love by hospitality is clearly commanded in both 2nd and 3rd John, the foundational reality below that duty is love for and obedience to the truth. So when you see, when you house a stranger during Shepherds Conference and you treat them like family, uh, because they are, and when you roll out the red carpet for them as if they were shining stars, because they are, and you're doing more than just playing hosts, my friends. You are doing the same thing that Gaius did 2,000 years ago. And you were obeying the Lord Jesus Christ and expressing your desire to further the Great Commission all throughout the world because your desire is to be obedient to the truth. Your hospitality to strangers is theological. Your hospitality to strangers is biblical. You are acting faithfully in whatever work you do for the brothers, showing them love as well. There is a fifth and last reaction. Thank you for staying uh, the Apostle John to paint the picture concerning Gaius. This is one of those tapes that you don't have to speed up to get through because it's going fast enough on its own. Not only a profession of apostolic love, a prayer for apostolic prosperity, a proclamation of apostolic joy, and a praise of apostolic confidence, but now, number 5, verse 6b, a plan for apostolic ministry. He says you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God for they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. In the midst of all that I've talked about, in the midst of all of this, there is a plan. There is a plan for apostolic ministry in all of this. A plan that has fellow workers with the truth being sent on their way, verse 7, for the sake of the name. Here before us in these verses is the instruction, motivation, and incentive for the church's involvement in missions from the great apostle himself. And this last point is one I hope to develop more next time as a necessary contrast to the portrait I want to bring before you. But suffice it to say, there was and is a plan. There was and is a plan to carry out what the Lord commanded in the Great Commission. And either you are supporting the plan or you are an impediment to the plan. And the great apostle is going to show us one such obstacle next week after Christmas on New Year's Day 2023. David Livingstone was a Scottish physician and a Christian missionary. He was considered one of the most popular British heroes of the late 19th century Victorian era who made Africa his mission field. It has been said that when Livingstone had arrived in Africa in 1841, it was as exotic as outer space, called the Dark Continent and the White Man's Graveyard. Although the Portuguese, Dutch, and English were pushing into the interior, African maps had been blank with unexplored areas, no roads, no countries, no landmarks. To many, this mission was too hard and the sacrifice was too great. And yet David Livingstone rejected that completely and he went out for the sake of the name and his quotation ends our time. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of glorious destiny afterwards? Anyway, away with the word sacrifice. Say rather, it's a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice, end quote. And that's what we're going to see with these traveling missionaries and the opposition they have next time we meet. Bow with me. Father, thank you for this wonderful group, uh, these wonderful Christians that are so attentive and so kind and, and learning about a letter that so many of us really have never studied. I'm so thankful for it, Lord. And I want us to all, if it be your will, to be impressed on our hearts with this one great truth, that is the way that we live our lives is either a, an advancement toward the great commission or an obstacle to it. Let us live in such a way where the Apostle John would see us and say, I love you in truth. I am so thankful you give me joy for the, for the commission that our great Lord gave you, and I say, see you being faithful in it. And Lord, since we know that John is with you and he cannot speak to us, we pray that you see and you know and you would correct our hearts, and you would allow us to be a living portrait before you as well that's recognized as one that loves you and follows you wherever you go. Bless our time, and thank you again for the opportunity to preach. In Christ's name, amen.